Greetings. This is Hitendra Wadba and welcome to Intersections. We call this podcast Intersections because so many times we get very confined and limited, sometimes unconsciously, if not consciously, because of silos, because of boundaries, because we get so caught up in certain boxes that we trap ourselves in. And therefore, the role of intersections is to help us dissolve those boundaries, to zoom out and see things from a more integrative and more whole lens. Because when we do that, flashes of new insights, new connections, new creativity and possibilities emerge. Today, it is my great pleasure to actually hand over the hosting responsibility to a dear friend, a colleague and mentor, Raghu Krishnamurthy. Raghu is the former CHRO of GE. Over the course of a few decades, he established a remarkably successful path for himself, going all the way from being at some stage, for example, the CHRO for GE Aviation, which is when I first got to know him. Then the chief learning officer for GE, the chief talent officer, the chief human resource officer for GE Healthcare, and ultimately for the whole global enterprise. And he moved on from there upon retirement to both pursue a PhD in leadership, at University of Pennsylvania, as well as a partnership with uh, my team and I at Mentora Institute, where he has been a beloved colleague as an executive director and a senior executive coach. So Raghu has since then graduated. He's now Dr. Raghu Krishnamurthy. He's also taken over stewardship as the director of the Chief Learning Officer Program at University of Pennsylvania, while simultaneously working with my team and I and our clients at Mentora. So Raghu, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today and let's welcome you into the show. Hi, everyone. And thank you, Hitendra. It's a real pleasure to be back at Intersections after a gap of a couple of years. And, uh, you know, you're right. It's a lot has gone by in the last two years, including me now turning to an academic career like yourself in many ways and learning from you along the way. So it's a pleasure to be with all of you, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful discussion over the next hour or so. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to hand over now the reins to you. Raghu was kind enough to say, Tendra, let me actually steward the show, and then that way draw some things out from you, because uh, you've just come out with a book, and we want to talk about that among so many other important things around the future of leadership that, Raghu, you're going to weigh in on. So I'm happy to do that. Just before I do that, I do want to say what I've seen over the last two years is just this incredible passion you have for learning, this curiosity that makes you interview and get, you know, so much of being a sponge-like sort of, you know, soaking in of all kinds of, you know, thinking from from others, trends and themes out there, and then repackaging them in a way that uh, allows us to make sense of our complicated times. And it's a gift to have you with us, Raghu. Floor is yours. Thank you for those kind words. And I must also congratulate you right now for coming out with such an important book uh, for our times, right? So I think we'll certainly have a chance to discuss about where my own research and your book coincides. And we'll, I'm sure, have a very interesting conversation on some of the things I'm uncovering, which gets addressed very well in the book. And we'll certainly enjoy that part of the conversation as well. So let me start by giving some statistics. And I don't know whether uh, uh, you read uh, just yesterday, Amazon came out with a report saying that uh, they are worried about the fact that they're going to run out of people by 2024. Hmm. I I was uh, stuck by that. What do you mean by that? I mean, so I looked into the article and they are experiencing huge attrition. 
they are experiencing an attrition of about three to four percent a week. And somebody did the totaling, and it came to about 150 percent attrition every year. Oh wow! In the warehouse business, the normal attrition is 45 to 50 percent. So Amazon is experiencing three times the attrition a normal benchmark on uh, attrition is. So it made me pause and look at the data is what's really happening. And right. there's some very contradicting issues that are creeping up. First is we're all aware of the great resignation. It spiked in November 2021 in terms of the fact that we have more opening than jobs. Huge talent shortage. And you can see that obviously affecting many of our lives to go to the airport. There's a strong chance that your flight is being canceled these days over the last few days, particularly in the US. While that is happening, I was looking at the trend in terms of Google search. The word great resignation obviously has been very popular, but it's starting to ease off. And its place, now you're starting to talk about the great restructuring with many organizations starting to lay off people, Hmm. especially in the tech world. I mean, even Elon Musk has come back and said, listen, I'm going to lay off people uh, because I overstaffed. So I think some, especially in some of the industries, you over-engineered the work- workforce in the last few months because you were worried about staffing issues. And now, given the fact that we are perhaps going to be heading into a very dark moment in our economic history, there is going to be some kind of a rethinking on that equation. So that is happening. as well. So you have great resignation. That is still not stopped. And the interesting right. of the great resignation is 33% of the people who have left organizations have left without jobs. This is a McKinsey survey. So where are they going? And you can see that affecting us in hospitals. There's a nursing shortage. There is a pilot shortage. In certain professions, people are not coming back. And I think we have to understand what is really happening. And the third dimension to this, this is also very interesting, is in some of the industries that were traditionally certainly not affected by unionization. You're now starting to see unions become very active. Apple has just organized some uh, union for the first time, an Apple store in North Carolina. Uh, Amazon warehouses are organizing. Starbucks, the Starbucks I go to at the University of Pennsylvania, claims now that they are unionized. So you have an interesting cocktail of issues cropping up related to workforce. And my own feeling is, that when we talk about what does it mean for leadership, you need to keep in mind that this is unreal. And I don't think we know where this is going to stop because the moment you have the great resignation followed by the great restructuring. And when a recession happens or restructuring happens, people actually hunker down. They actually stop leaving because they want to have the safety net of a job. So you're going to stop seeing the great resignation. You're going to see the uptick in great restructuring. But the moment the economy comes back, you're going to see the resurgence of the great resignation once again because of pent-up demand for people to go and try something else. So you're going to see these swings over the next few years. So if you were to look at the future of work, the future of work is very dynamic. You're going to see resignation, restructuring, resignation, restructuring over the next many years with all other complications like unionization all built into that equation. So it's going to be three, four cycles of uh, shifts that we don't even know where it's going to land. So actually, now you may assume or think that uh, this makes me a little pessimistic, worried. I'm actually very optimistic because in these tectonic shifts that we are seeing, uh, where we really don't have a clue about 
what the context tells us, where the world is going. Most people find solace within, not outside. In fact, uh, you know, uh, you all know that Sheryl Sandberg left Meta a few weeks ago, or she's planning to leave Meta, and she had written this book on Lean In, right? And if you look at the reason why she said she's leaving, she said, because I want to focus on my philanthropy work and uh, I want to focus on the foundation. It tells us that it's not, as far as Sheryl Sandberg is concerned, it's not about leaning in anymore. Maybe it's about leaning within more. And if it's leaning within, then I think uh, that talks to the fact that there is a very interesting shift happening in the world. When we cannot control the outside, we need to start looking inside. Yeah, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. You know, uh, you pointed to some really powerful shifts and trends that are going on right now in the business world. The unionization one, you're right, is actually one of the more fresher ones, restructuring that is uh, around the corner. I was uh, at Heathrow Airport just a couple of days ago, getting stuck in that uh, lack of manpower, you know, situation with baggage claim taking three hours before we were able to retrieve a baggage. And uh, with no announcement, no update, no no nothing. It, it's as if like the airport has just kind of completely given up, <laughs> strained to the ultimate and just given up on being able to be operationally efficient or even in any way accountable. I also want to highlight that when you combine this with social disruptions that are happening around us as well, right? From... Yeah the mental health crisis, the um, political and social divisions, the geopolitical challenges, the kind of the question about what is it that the role of businesses in society? Is it is it purely to produce investor return or something else? And well, what is that something else? And if some employees pull you one way and then others don't want to have you take an official position or change that much, or I mean, it's a tough spot that any of the leaders and managers of organizations today are placed in, both yeah, from the outside. Very rightly so, I think that's the, this, it's a real tough spot. In fact, um, I read a statistic which said 78% of the CEOs expect to be fired within the next couple of years. Imagine the tension yeah, that they would yeah, be Yeah, yeah. Now, Raghu, I have been studying these things more from the outside. I had humble steps in my career at, at, at McKinsey and doing startups. And then I ended up in business school 20 years ago. You had a long ride and a storied ride at one of the preeminent uh, organizations of its time, a conglomerate, right, GE. Uh, so you've seen just a whole lot of these dynamics play out in past decades. And I'm just curious, can you put this in perspective for us, those of us who don't have that kind of experience as you do? Like, how close or far from normal is this? And Or not, if not normal, I mean, you know, there have been exceptional moments in the past where change and uncertainty and all of that has been foisted on leaders, managers, and organizations? I mean, how how different is it from, you know, or is it different at all from cycles like this you've seen in the past? I think the rate of change, as opposed to the content of change itself, has picked up. So you're talking about great resignation till a month ago, and now you're talking about great restructuring, and then you're going to talk about great resignation once again in the next few months. I think that that rate has picked up so fast that many leaders feel that they really don't control the environment anymore. So you've got to live through a crisis has now become a core competency. It's not a peripheral skill. Right. And you can think about the strategy. You can think about um, long-term plans. But you are actually caught 
by what happens to you at the end of the day when that, that message comes through and you don't anticipate it. I, and I think that is what is unnerving many people because there is no template. And yeah. that's why I call this, this uh, phase the figure it out phase, not the find it out phase. And what do I mean by that? In a find it out phase, you have, a, you have something to fall back on. There is a template, there is a best practice, there is a benchmark, there is somebody who has done it before and you can say, all right, I'm going to try that out. Figure it out phase, even at an individual level, not just at an organization level, you have no clue. So you have to yeah. experiment, you have to innovate, you have to pilot and test out the waters and you really have no idea where it's going to end up. So I think the, the living on the edge, uh, living on the flow of change and leading on the flow of change is the new norm that mm -hmm. I would say all uh, the, the next era of leaders need to grapple with. Uh, things were a little better for us, uh, not that it was perfect, but actually the next era of leaders need to grapple with the fact that they are living on the edge all the time. And it is an occupational hazard to lead organizations which are constantly in white waters. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let's then lean within, as you so thoughtfully put it. <laughs> Not just lean in, but lean within. It seems to me, Raghu, that in this context then of change being almost the inexorable, just unavoidable, daily, continual imperative, and one which, like you're saying, the pace is so searing, that, um, you know, if I think about like the role of any decision maker, any leader, any person in a position of responsibility, 70, 80 percent of what you do in a day might be very programmatic, might be things based on how things have been done in the past. And you probably just are able to very comfortably operate by instinct, by past judgments, by great clarity about pattern recognition and all you see around you. And then, you know, 20, 20 percent of what you're doing now and then you have to really go deep and slow down and be creative and soul search and assimilate from so many other sources and people. But today... It seems like most of the things that you have to do, most of the things that are on your desk every morning require more of that conscious, deliberate, thoughtful, and yet to your point, like you really don't even know which template to use. Experimental, evolutionary kind of. So it appears to me that it's possible that a number of leaders with the pressures they face, the uncertainty, the need to bring in much more of cognition and engagement and thought and connection with people and collaboration. I mean, it is a recipe potentially, unless you're really rejuvenating from within, for burnout, for leadership burnout. Many ways. Absolutely correct. I think, um, I, and I'll go there. I think there's going to be an important discussion on that one. But you're right. The, the difficulty that many leaders have is that there is no template. So they, are, they end up being prone to two kinds of biases. One is an expediency bias, and second is an experience bias. What do I mean by experiency bias? Experiency bias is when you want to solve the problem today, and you come up with an answer. Okay, I'm going to do, declare a three-two kind of a framework for remote working. That's it. Right. And there is a blowback on that, right? On the and then experience bias is when you use your experience uh, to continue to hark on to the old rather than pivot to the new. Say. Uh, my perception is that from working from office is more productive than working from home. That's an experience bias that many of us are used to. Right. So I think what ends up happening is that leaders get stuck and they are now grappling with the need to make decisions, the need to move forward and feeling stuck. And that is a real cause for tension and burnout. 
because they don't know where to, what to do. Damned if they did, damned if they didn't. I mean, a clear example of that is Apple, uh, which perfectly came up with an idea, okay, we're going to do two, two, two days, people can work from home, and we're going to provide them flexibility, but three days they need to come to the office. And many organizations have done that. What's ended up happening is that they, over 70% of the employees in Apple push back. In fact, one of their senior leaders, Ian Goodfellow, resigned because he didn't want that. They, the open letter from the Apple employees actually says, I'm paraphrasing here, that you allow us to decide what is best for us and allow us to do our best work in our lives. That is the open letter. So what would you do uh, if you say, okay, my stance is I'm going to allow you to come for um, th three days to the office and these are the dates. And employees say, no, we will decide which three days to come. That is not something that you you know how to answer. So I think the lesson for and what does it do to the executive, saying that okay, my God, here are here are decisions I'm making. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, and if I'm wrong, I am now in a public square with Twitter or recordings and whatnot, and I'm being reprimanded publicly by my employees and the society. So I think that is a cause for enormous tension, and therefore people are in a gridlock in terms of how to approach this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It strikes me, this may be a great time for all of us to become students like you have in the last few years. And um, one of the things perhaps we can study is just um, how history could guide us about how in the past, iconic figures, you know, people who have left a really positive, beautiful mark on humanity with their leadership, perhaps sometimes stretching over decades. How is it that they actually ended up comporting themselves at times when there was a, a fair amount of disruption and change and they were actually you know, pushing for some of that themselves. And therefore, what are some of the practices they were engaged in that made them overcome this kind of experience bias or experience bias? And I'm thinking about Lincoln's Civil War. You know, I mean, obviously a hugely disruptive time going through something unprecedented in America's history. And then you have like Gandhi and the movement he was trying to lead in India. Mother Teresa doing you know, her work, any, you know, and these are people, as you know, you know, are, are well loved, you know, by, by me in, in, in the research that I, I've been doing over, over the years and which, you know, I've dedicated chapters to in the book. I think there is a few things that we can turn to for advice and guidance to our inner circle of operational figures, you know, li like these. No doubt. You, you, write so, you write about that so eloquently in your book. It's, uh, you know, the whole thing about wisdom is about finding your own internal markers, right? Working through when you're facing such a dynamic environment where you really don't have answers, you, you are guided by your moral compass or compass. In fact, a few days ago, Tim Cook, I don't know whether you saw that, Tim Cook was giving a convocation or commencement address in one of the universities. And he said, in the future, those of us who want to lead need to start leading through an inner compass or a moral compass. Oh, it's not about what will happen. It's not about what will happen. It's about who you will be when that happens that matters most. Oh, how beautiful. How beautiful. Beautiful. It links to something I, I like to say, which is uh, great leaders are great followers. Typically, when we have used that expression, which has been used at times in business, that leaders need to be followers, the frame for that has been followers of their people. Mm. But uh, but I think the frame we are talking about, which is what I prefer and I like to talk about also, in, you know, is, is that they are followers of their inner voice. There you go. They um, really engage in the discipline of listening and surrendering to that inner voice. 
And uh, it moves me to share a story, uh, Raghu, which is there's this American journalist who was very inspired by Gandhi and his movement and went over to meet him in India and at some point said, Mr. Gandhi, you know, you speak so actively about the need to listen to your inner voice and be guided by it and that it's so important to you. And a lot of people claim to follow their inner voice, sometimes to really dangerous and bad places in what they take on and what they do, where it's quite clear that they were in some ways quite, you know, quite delusionary. So he says, how do you how do you know for sure that it's the right voice that is guiding you and, and not some kind of wrong, misguided, whatever? And is it the case that you first really validate and prove to yourself that it's the right voice and then you surrender to it? And Gandhi, the journalist reports later, he said, Gandhi looked at me as though like, what? Like, is this all that you have understood about my movement, my teachings, my methods? Because it seems so far away from what I truly mean. And then he says, Gandhi actually explained his facial expression to me. He said, actually, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. It's not that you first have to convince yourself that it's your inner voice and then you surrender to it. It is the opposite. You first surrender. And it is in that act of surrender where you are beyond attachments and ego and insecurities uh, and all that, that then you can feel secure that what you are listening to is actually your inner voice. That's so powerfully put. And one question I have is maybe, maybe over the last two, three years, given what, what we have had to do as as humanity, many of us may actually have done that. And that's what I'm excited about. It's, that's why I call the age of unfolding. We may have started listening to our inner voice more. And what it has done is it has what about three shifts and that goes straight into your book. For me, first is what I'm experiencing and seeing in the workforce is the first shift is a career life fit shift. And it's not, I'm not, I'm not talking about work life, but it's career right. life shift, fit. What people are looking for is uh, what are we working for? And more than that, what are we living for? And if they're basing their decisions on what we, what are, what are we living for? Right. It goes back to saying, is my career meeting my inner purpose? And while they may not be able to articulate that, somewhere along, uh, along the line, I think the lamp has been lit. Right. For them to say, okay, is this where I feel I belong? Or is there something I need to do differently? And you can see that, right? Whether it's the nurses, it's not, they're not against the profession. They're against the career they're in or the pilots or many of us making the decision saying that I don't feel that this is, this kind of a career is going to give me fulfillment and I'm now going to let my life values determine my career, not the other way around. Right. And I think that's a powerful shift that I think people are experiencing, which is why, according to McKinsey, 33% of the people who are leaving due to the great resignation are leaving without jobs. They're doing their own stuff. They're starting their own consulting. They're starting their own gig work. They are embracing their passion and purpose. And I think it's the moment that has created the movement, so to speak. And I think it's a very powerful uh, appreciation of the fact that as human beings, there is this inner stirring, inner trigger within us that has been let on fire. So I think, I hope everybody gets to read your chapter on living with purpose and leading with purpose, because that, that is the source of how people are making their shifts and decisions. Yeah. One of the things that I've really over time realized is um, 
so critical is to make idealism marry pragmatism, right? So each of us um, on the one hand from inside, you know, has a certain heroic aspiration, a certain purity of purpose and a desire to manifest beauty in some ways that are very personal to who we are. And at the same time, we are in this messy, muddy world, you know, around us, whatever the conditions and the times that we live in. And sometimes people think that you're talking about the workplace, but I'm talking about just like every aspect of your outer life. I mean, because sometimes even one's family relationships and even the societal expectations around us, you know, we're not like perfectly seeing ourselves fit in in every which way with regard to the expectations and asks and desires of people around us. And so whether it's, you know, on the personal or professional side, Sometimes that can be very messy and muddy. And that's the pragmatist, you know, that also needs to emerge where, so as I think about some of these things you're saying about the great resignation, people pulling back, going more to their core values and wanting to express them. I also wonder if along the way they'll discover like, oh, wow, you know, but I also need to make money. I do have a certain hunger for wanting to be liked and loved and applauded and rewarded on the outside. And I, I kind of like miss some of that because like I'm trying to do my own thing, but I'm really struggling with making money or I joined this, I don't know, you know, that this organization with much more of a beautiful purpose, but I, you know, it's not really doing financially as well because I've actually seen that. I've seen that with a couple of people close at hand who left to be pursuing a more idealistic career, then got grounded more on the pragmatism of what they feel, felt they needed out of life financially and otherwise, and ended up kind of moving back to a more mainstream corporate kind of thing, which really is not as much a source of passion, you know, for them, but is giving them the practical things that they want to. And I mean, one of the things I want to offer from that, one of the things we I talk about in the book is that when we get more purpose-driven, we also have to know what things to say no to. And part of that no is just like simplifying life, you know, simplifying life so that if you can get to a point where you can be at peace, you can be happy with less, less consumption, less of a, what's the minimum financial, you know, kind of requirement I have for my family and I to be perhaps less cars in the garage or whatever. You just, for, for those of us who are not, let's say, financially, you know, completely free and independent, it's those kinds of disciplines that then actually make us very free because the range of flexible options for us in life just start to dramatically expand. Uh, I, I don't know what you think of that. I'll push back on that one, Hidimra. You're right in one sense and not so right in the other sense. And that's where our, our experience bias comes in. That's exactly how I thought, right? My thinking was, okay, we also need to put food on, food, food on the table. So how do we reconcile the two? I was just reading yesterday that um, the Gen Z, which is those people born between 1997 and 2012 who are coming into the workforce, they are going to be 27% of the workforce in the next three years. The key in differentiators between them and the next generation, is, in the previous generation, is the fact that these are people who don't trust institutions at all. Right. They've gone through all that. Instead, they only trust on their skills. They said, I'll get my own badging. I'll get my own skills. And they are now, and they are far more wiser to issues of inequity, inequalities, uh, how do I make sure that I live my purpose? So they are making choices based on how they want to live. So I read a quote from one youngster, which was fantastic. He said, listen, we know that these are some practical issues, but we also know that the pain is inevitable. However, suffering is a choice. So I will make the choices based on whether I want to suffer or not. And I would rather not suffer from a dead-end job which gives me money than take up a job where, where I have more meaning than money. Yeah, will, I, will that put me at risk? 
Will that be make me an outcast in society? Will that make me live uh, a life lesser than what I'm used to? Maybe it's worth the sacrifice. Your definition of success is frozen in time. Wake up. You need to see something different. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a very powerful shift. If that's actually happening, not just at an anecdotal level, but something more thematically across that generation. After all, I mean, at some level, we should all be, you know, basically humble enough to realize that if you look at the history of the last like few hundred years, pretty much every generation at some level or the other has, in a positive way, outdone the previous one. Mm-hmm. Which is why we've ended up, um, even with all the you know shaking and stirring that is happening today, we've ended up in a much better world today than we were 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, quite a lot better than 200 years ago. So from that vantage point, this Gen Z's, I mean, another 30, 40, 50 years when they're taking over the world, they're probably going to create a much better world than ours. <laughs> and that's why I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, and that's why I'm really optimistic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have another shift to talk about. And this goes into the, the leading, living with love and leading with love. And I, I think it's an understated um, phenomena that's happening. We are all preoccupied with the concept of well-being, right? Uh, and we now talk about well-being as the opposite of ill-being, which is the world is broken down, mental health issues, burnout issues, stress. Those are realities, no doubt about that. But uh, if you look at what is the, what people are trying to do in terms of well-being, your books tax on something else which is perhaps not fully leveraged. And I'll take, I'll come to that. When we talk about addressing well-being, many people talk about, okay, let's talk about as well-being in terms of the enjoyment that we all need to have. We need to go for the occasional ball game or we need to go for the concert where we can enjoy ourselves. And that's a very human tendency. That also addresses well-being. And for a couple of years, we were all locked up at homes and now that the world is starting to come back, we are we are wanting to travel. We want to see new things and experience new things. There's another angle to well-being, which is around mindfulness, which is around gratitude, which is around sleep and some of those things that basically calm you down. You pick up on a third aspect of well-being, which is under-leveraged, and that's love. When you share love, the feeling that you have of well-being actually dramatically increases and you don't need any external machinery to do that. And when we talk about the word love here, we are talking about your definition here, which is sharing, being joyful in other people's joy. And I think when, and you see some of that stuff happening, but it's not brought to light. So if somebody, if if you hear of a story about a young lad who wakes up at three o'clock in the morning to walk to work for six hours, the go front page now make sure that he gets a car or she gets a car. Or if you look at um, somebody, if, if you look at Ukraine, uh, the the kind of outpouring of love uh, that we've had to many people. I was reading today that almost all the psychiatrists and psychologists in Ukraine, in Israel, have gone out of their way. One, there was one lady of Israeli, of Ukrainian origin, who, who said, I'm going to be helping out these people who are obviously going through trauma. Uh, and before she knew it, she could not meet the requirements and the demand. So she started asking for help. Now you have a huge number of psychiatrists who are helping the Ukrainian uh, people navigate through their suffering. And one of the statements this lady made was, it is meant for more for me than for them. And I think the fact that you are able to contribute to the uplifting of humanity through your share of love 
and giving is a huge well-being lever. And that's why as organizations look at what they need to do to address well-being, stress, I think there is a lot to be told about for volunteer work, making sure that you have the chance of benefiting somebody who's not as lucky as you. And you know, addressing those issues is an un, untapped potential of well-being that we perhaps need to think more seriously. I don't know what you have to say to that. Like, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I love it. I love it. One broad frame in which maybe we could place this with the HR kind of hats, you know, that uh, uh, we might wear for a minute is intrinsic versus extrinsic drivers of motivation. I mean, we have operated in business for so long with the assumption that um, people are economic maximizing agents, you know, very rational, very uh, much about optimizing, you know, their financial and other similar material outcomes. And, and that's certainly an undeniable part of like the human motivation system. Uh, and that's the external one. And yet at the same time, if that's the only one you operate with, team level, manager level, individual level, organizational level, you're just missing out on like so much more richness there is, right, to human drives. And what you are just citing here, Raghu, is that yes, one of those drives can actually be more of the resilience and meaning that the right purpose and alignment with your values can bring, which you just spoke about and you talked about in an inspiring way how there are so many in Gen, Gen Z that are actually starting to activate that other alternative system of motivation. But then love is another of those motivation systems within us where when the heart is on fire, then just fundamentally one is so driven to do like heroic and beautiful and selfless uh, work uh, without necessarily the need to feel like you're going to reciprocally get like some material or, you know, psychic kind of like acknowledgement. I mean, it's funny, it reminds me of the story about um, Abraham Lincoln. He was once going with a senator you know, in a carriage somewhere. And uh, he was asserting to the senator that basically human nature is fundamentally selfish, fundamentally selfish. It's about serving one's own self. Now, this is someone we know in history is actually a remarkable figure for the very selfless leadership he had, Lincoln. But, you know, he was basically arguing for how selfish human nature is. And then at one point, he, he noticed that uh, there was a sow, you know, like female pig, right? And her, her two little piglets. And he saw that there was a marshy terrain, maybe that's been rained there recently. And these two little piglets were basically swirling in that marshy thing, you know, kind of like almost being like sucked in by the swampy conditions probably to like drown and ultimately, you know, kind of die. And this sow, this pig, she was like really almost like shrieking in some kind of pain at seeing like the risk of losing her, her two little ones. And so Lincoln actually asks the carriage to pause and then he steps out of it. And then he goes over there into those muddy, marshy waters, rescues those two little piglets and puts them back in the safe refuge of, uh, of their mother. And then he comes back, you know, muddy and all into the carriage and the senator looks triumphantly at uh, at Lincoln because he'd been having an argument or debate about him. And he says, see, Mr. Lincoln, he wasn't president at that time, but he says, see, Mr. Lincoln, you were wrong. Human nature is not selfish. If it was selfish, you know, you wouldn't have done what you just did. And then Lincoln looked at him and he said, but I did it for me. I did it for me because I would have been so much in pain right. if I had allowed this moment to pass and yeah. just ignored you know, uh, you know, so I did it for my own joy, you know, to, to, you, to bring you, also quote, you, you quote Rumi in the book, which says, you know, love is the bridge to everything. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think it's a very powerful notion of well-being. Love as a 
an important source of well-being in everything we do. And the question is, can we be intentional? I tried this as an experiment, Hitin, I must tell you this. Yeah, I yeah. Said, what can I do this morning that exemplifies this value, right? Okay, okay. Uh, and one of the things I did was, uh, one of my students has been going through a tough patch. Hmm. And having gone through a tough patch, she could not complete her assignments on time. I ha- and I had two alternatives. I could say that you know I'm going to fail you, or I can give her more time. I decided to give her more time right. uh, and gave her some tips. And when she finished it, she sent it to me. I I marked her grades today, uh, and it, there were issues. And you know it was not perfect. What I did do was, if I were to lead with love as opposed to just give her a bad grade, what would I do differently? Okay. I'm using Hitendra's tricks here. So uh-huh. I sent yeah. her a note. I sent her a note saying that I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you for having gone through what you've gone through and still coming up with uh, what you did. You had to work extra hard. You had to work um, more hours in the night while you were in classes to do what you need to do. And you produce an output, which I must say falls below my expectation. But yeah. knowing the context with which you did it, I am overjoyed that you were able to pull this through. Oh, I'm going to ask you, but keep in mind that my standards from you are going to only increase. And I'm here to support you through that journey. I felt so good after that. Forget whether yeah. she is good well or not. The fact that I was able to exemplify. So it's a part, for me, that was a moment of well-being. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's so, Thank you for sharing that. What a great story. And I can only imagine how she will be receiving it and how lasting an impact it will have on her. You know, what you've just uh, exemplified here, as you've said, is not just uh, the broad kind of quality of love and how, as an experiment, you've discovered that in a selfless capacity, when you put it out there, it ends up benefiting you yourself. But um, I talk in the book about um, how sometimes we feel very paralyzed from acting upon that instinct. Much as we have great intentions and aspirations about what we want to do, uh, we feel quite helpless about being able to have really any material impact right. uh, at times in the life of the suffering soul, you know, who's in front of us at times in the context of the causes that we really believe in, because they seem so intractable and large. And, you know, and, and meanwhile, I'm just a drop in that ocean and all that. And so oftentimes many of us are not doing anything or we struggle with like, OK, how can I help this? person? you know, I, I, I mean, they just let's say, for example, they just like lost a loved one. I mean, what is it that I can say or do right now which will ever be of any help to them because I'm so like minuscule compared to this gravity of loss that they've just gone through. And uh, the thing that I've learned through so many stories and studies like this is that actually it matters. It matters to put your love in action, even in small actions, even just a symbolic action. It may not be something that can materially, fully and permanently and scalably change everything, you know, what it is that is causing need or hunger or pain or something out there. But having put your love into some small, simple action, that was the message and the value that I see in the mother trees and all of that, right? I mean, they may not have been able to like cleanse the whole ocean, you know, of humanity of like its ills, but whatever little drop, whatever little thing, for them, that was significant and meaningful and gave them peace of mind. And actually more recently, just before I had to put the final kind of dotting of I and crossing of T's in the book, I actually came across very satisfyingly so some science which shows that that um, you actually become more at peace with yourself when you have certain aspirations like that and you just give a, some expression to them. 
It could be a simple expression, small expression, limited expression. In your case, Raghu, you can't fully turn around the life of this individual that you're talking about, but still you put your love into action. That's it. My, the only question I would have for you, Hitendra, is there is an intentionality to it. You got to use that as a discipline. So in some ways, I'm wondering, love in action, purpose in action, every one of the five things that we speak about yeah. The book, there is an intentionality and maybe even beyond, right? For instance, can you put empathy into action? Can you put curiosity into action in everything you do? And I'm actually reminded of uh, one of the lessons we learned from Benj Franklin, right? That the, the 13 virtues. If we decide to pick one or two and exemplify that for that particular day, you can do all 13 of them. But I'm saying, even if you say, I'm going to be curious today and every action that you have or you take is through the lens of curiosity or if you because otherwise the default is on unfortunately we become victims of reaction reactionary behavior as opposed to intentional behavior and therefore as leaders i think the appeal i would have is if you want to if you want to start from within if you want to find the source of energy from within i think we may need to be more intentional in some of these behaviors going forward yeah yeah very, very well put. Very well put. You reminded me of, um, I think there's a resource out there. I may not be able to immediately get it right here, but I can point us towards it, at least our listeners, which is, you know, you're at UPenn, uh, some great research, you know, in the positive psychology movement that has started from UPenn. And there's a list of 24 universal values. And I think that community had some point put up some resources about just helping give us examples of how do you, like you said, put creativity into action on, uh, you know, on a random day in your life. How do you put humility into action? How do you put transcendence into action? How do you put gratitude into action, etc.? And it's it's a great uh, you know resource for those of us who are drawn to the idea of making these um, things very tangible and very expressed, you know, in in our daily lives. Back to you. Where, where do where do you want to take the conversation? Next? <laughs> the question I would have is, what does it mean? If 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 on the one hand you have this whole swirl happening in the environment. If on the other hand people are becoming becoming more intentional based on themselves, their inner source, what does it mean going forward? And I think that's where the two meet, right? The, the inner uh, inner mastery as a toolkit for outer impact. Uh, I think yes. that's where the two uh, connect, converge for me. And for me, the future of leadership, because we talk about the future of work, we talk about the future of the worker, the workplace, we hardly talk about future of leadership. And in, that is what I meant by the future of leadership is about unlearning. It's about unlearning management and relearning leadership, which means that, uh, you know, we got to rethink our leadership from a human-centric point of view and not necessarily from a business-centric point of view. We got to re-engineer that. And we've had, uh, if you look at the greatest of leaders, that whether it's Mandela or Gandhi uh, or Lincoln, their success came from their human centricity, not from their outcome centricity, right? The fact that they were able to create an environment where they were able to shift people's perspectives based on how they operated in a human-centric way it's such a powerful example for us to use going forward in a very uncertain world, in a difficult world. 
in a yeah. traumatic world. So each of these leaders are perfect examples of those people who are dealing with complex, multi-layered, multi-dimensional, traumatic situations, but using their human skills as a vehicle for transformation. Because my big issue is, I think, you see some of the people laying off people, people, leaders exemplifying more a transactional orientation. And McKinsey came up with a study, right? They looked at what did leaders think about the great resignation? The leader said it's because of compensation. It's because of uh, the fact that they want to work from home. Some people even said that's because they are lazy, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But if you ask the employees why they are leaving the organization, McKinsey said the opposite. I'm not being valued by my manager. I'm not being valued by my organization. I feel the fact that uh, I don't have a keen sense of belonging. So there you are. So you actually have a dichotomy and leaders need to realize that they need to start the shift based on a human-centric focus. In fact, Josh Burson, who's an HR guru, did a survey of 400 HR managers. And the conclusion they came to was that the future of uh, organization is going to be human-centric. At the end of the day, I mean, uh, if you look at the biggest discovery we've had, is the future of work is not about uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that stuff. That'll happen. It's about people. Ah, that's yeah. what we've gone through as a as worldwide. That's what we've gone through. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to sort of uh, come back to the theme of love that you brought up. Um, when these leaders, to your point, have been very human centric, what I find is that this is not merely an intellectual choice. This is not merely a an awareness that look, this is what the world needs today. These folks were incredibly in love with humanity. I mean, in love with humanity, and then naturally so that love starts to flow, that dedication, that commitment, that purpose starts to flow, that attunement, that empathy, that compassion, the connection, all that because they're just deeply in love, and you can't be in love unless there is something about the other side that you are in awe of that you find magical, that you find really pure and beautiful and soaring and you feel very connected to it. I mean, without those conditions, how can you be in love? <laughs> it's like all you can see is messiness and lack of trustworthiness and you know laziness and, and all of that, right? And so in some ways, I, I felt like one of the seeds we have to sow in our lives is this capacity to live in a state of appreciation. And um, I'll give you an example. Steve Jobs it's not been you know, traditionally considered in, in mainstream consciousness to be one of these love-oriented leaders. But actually, I mean, I see him as a tremendous force of love uh, that were expressed through many of his actions uh, in, in unique ways. We may have only so much time to go through something of that here today. So more of that to be read, you know, if you read uh, you know, the chapter on living with growth in my book. But, um, but one of the things I, I discovered from his journey uh, you know, when we think about all the you know genius that he was able to unleash, you know, in terms of creativity and design and innovation and all of that, where did it come from? Where did it start? You know, was it because he just had like some you know tremendous like insight into the future of products and technology and all that? No, the place where it started from, what was different between a Steve Jobs and other technologists of his time and other other folks who were you know kind of doing innovations in his time, what was different about Steve Jobs is he really believed in humanity. He believed that within every human being lay somebody with high design sensibilities. 
somebody who would choose if they were given the choice to go for something which was highly well designed gave a simple and beautiful and compelling user experience even if it cost hundreds of dollars or more mm-hmm. than the traditional mainstream product there because that's what he did right the cost of phones was going down and down and down the nokias and motorolas from 200 to 150 200 and they were fighting over how many more features and how many more buttons to put on those phones incredibly complex devices you know you needed all kinds of orientation and training before you could use any of them but you know as consumers we weren't really thinking very much about like what's the alternative you know this is kind of like the world we want the price to go down and we kind of want more features and it's just going to be messy and complicated right. and then he pierces through all of that into our soul and he sees at the level of our soul in humanity somebody who's really able to make good design away from poor design and is right. able to choose good design and then he tells his people go ahead and design this and do this and then he introduces the product in the market at a price point which is a multiple 3x 4x the cost of an average phone and typically the the logic has been that that's a premium play it will attract a certain luxury segment because it's 3x 4x the normal price right right said, he's he doesn't sacrifice market share he actually dominates market share with a 3x 4x premium price product right so he completely destroys that 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 trade off that we find actually in you know price demand kind of elasticity right where price is high demand is high because he actually activated another dimension of who we are right because he was in love with humanity he saw possibilities in us that nobody else was seeing including sometimes our own selves right gandhi saw the same thing he saw peace in people whereas everybody else said well when there's a revolution then people will be very bloody and fighting oriented but gandhi saw peace even while there was a revolution to be done right mother, mother teresa saw compassion in people and evoked it and drew it out even of like fear dictators who would like eat from my hands and say mother you remind me of my grandmother <laughs> and say okay come here bring your sisters and others were shivering in the skins about being in front of the you know at that time like the sandinista rebel you know leader general noriega who I have a story about in the book mother teresa and him and all of that so yeah. anyway i mean i just want to kind of offer that up that you, you know you make a great point about human centered and human but a lot of this human thing starts from like what's your relationship with humanity there you go you know, do you see positivity and beauty and magic in people because if you don't then maybe that's the first place we all have to start agreed and i think uh, it all it, what you tell me what you say just now also reminds me is leadership about pushing or is leadership about pulling in and what do i mean most of us assume that if you are a leader you have to push 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 success execute get things done make sure that you get uh, people to do their most for you but if you are the mother teresa if you are the uh, steve jobs you pull people into your orbit and they become leaders not because they proclaim themselves to be leaders not because they have the position of a leader but because they pull people into their orbit and make them change makers right so in many ways i think uh, that that is the shift that we have to see in all of us i think the younger age group i'm very optimistic about the next generation of people demanding that uh, there is a different world out there now it'll be a pity if we fail them um, because that means that we are reverting back to old but i'm actually they are far more activist oriented than we ever were and i think they will demand and drive for the change to for the world to be better yeah yeah 
I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I feel a sense of, you know, optimism as well. I think that, um, you know, sometimes the path of evolution is um, incremental and it's about learning and mastering the tools of the trade and getting to find an inside route towards ultimately being an agent of reform. And sometimes there are moments that come where you realize that actually so much of the old order needs to be dismantled that it might be better just to start from scratch and just like start building new systems and, and, and new ideas and new approaches. And I think I'm seeing a little bit of that, you know, happening now, which is what is accelerating change. That it's no longer a spend, you know, five years and then 10 years and then 15 years and then incrementally add your little imprint to, to the world in, in, in law or in medicine or something. But the possibility today of uh, just complete reinvention, you know, starting from scratch with certain more fresh ideas, core building blocks that are out there in society, those possibilities are there. And I wonder, I mean, I just I'm fascinated about when we look back, you know, 20, 30 years later, 40 years later to see what kind of constructive, positive revolutions were wrought, you know, on. on Correct. Correct. I think we I, I think on that note, we need to close it. While the world may look difficult and troublesome, I think something good will emerge out of this whole equation. Um, and from that point of view, all of us are going to become a lot more reflective, a lot more thoughtful. We're going to be guided by our experience, but also by our inner voice as we go forward. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Lincoln, uh, Lincoln, in the midst of all the crisis and the criticism that was being hurled at him, some saying, you're going too fast. Another saying, you're going too slow. You know, he, he said, look, I, I just want to conduct the affairs of the state so that at the end of the day, I may have lost every other friend on earth uh, except that one friend who is deep down inside of me. And so that that potential is there for all of us to strengthen. And in, in fact, that's my greatest wish for the next generation, the greatest wish that don't listen to your friends, don't listen to me, don't listen to Raghu, anyone, but develop a really strong, clear, humble, open, surrendering attitude towards attunement with the universe and with nature as it expresses itself to you through the subtle stirrings that arise within, right? Through the inner voice. And um, if that is what we can give as uh, perhaps our message and our guidance, you know, to the next generation, you know, I think what a lifelong asset they would have with them to kind of mm -hmm. help. Uh, yeah. 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 Raghu, it's been a great joy to have you with us. You always are so replete and rich with new, new stories, new statistics, new perspectives and things. Uh, and it's, it's so refreshing. Uh, every time we have Thank a conversation, you. I know we've had a couple of them in the past and intersections and now this one here today, very, very grateful and good luck in your new role at UPenn as well. Uh, you're stewarding a really important responsibility in taking the learning officers and in, in organizations and really helping them. Yeah. Just kind of learn the most cutting edge of what it is that um, we can today offer for advancing human potential in organizations. So excited for the journey that you're ahead, you know, that you're going on and looking forward to your, your book coming out. Uh, Someday. You have it Someday. Of it. <laughs> Thank you. And what, I, what, uh, just to close it out, what would you likely think it'll be on your book, your, you know, your first book? Uh, it'll be, it'll be, uh, I think how HR practices need to change to be a lot more human centric. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is out of 38 years of corporate life, right? Uh, and I feel now I, I look at the lay of the land and uh, having had the last two, three years to think this through, I know it, the many things that I did wrong. And out of that comes wisdom, right? You, you calibrate what you're learning through the eyes of your uh, battle scars and uh, 
what you've gone through, yeah. then you realize and appreciate the fact that uh, there could be another way. Oh, yeah. And hopefully I'll be focusing on what the other way will be. Yeah, and it's it's such a beautiful way through which to channel positivity through one's own, you know, at times, uh, errors of the past, you know, which is like, okay, it is because of my errors that future generations will not make errors if I can actually codify and help create some teaching and learning out of it. So humanity on the whole grows from the investment that was made in my life experience. Exactly. Yeah. How that is how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity and good luck with the book, Itendra. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. And uh, good luck with all that you're doing in life. If you're interested, feel free to check out Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, you know, my book that has just been recently published and look forward to Raghu's in the next several months uh, as well. Take care. Bye-bye.